Wow. Wow. Okay. Hi, guys. How are we all tonight? Good. Isn't that an incredible song? Amazing grace. I was once lost, but now I'm found. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful time of worship. Thank you, band. It was beautiful. Each and every song tonight. Although they knew a few of the things we were going to speak on, there were some songs there I hadn't even heard before yet. Each and every one of them are a part of God's story tonight, and we get to share that. So I am going to hand it over to Matt. Well, good evening to the last Faith Promise uh, night for the month, for the year. And um, uh, we're excited to be here and talk about Faith Promise. Faith Promise is Axis Church's emphasis on missions. And for most of you, most of the time, most of your life, you'll probably be in your local church and, um, and, and, and live out your Christian life in, in, in your work and in your home and, and where you are. But for some of you, God might call you and might call you to a far exotic place, far <laughs> away, to a place that you might not even be wanted and to go and... Go and um, share Christ's love to overcome barriers and, and actually uh, be a witness in, in, in very difficult places. So tonight we're going to talk, my wife and I are going to talk about um, our time with Mission Aviation Fellowship. So this is us, 2005. <laughs> We've got no uh, sons Jesse and Delane, Jacob and JL, and no Talitha. <laughs> wasn't even born then. So we joined MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, in 2005. I trained as an aircraft engineer, and we eventually went up to Papua New Guinea. Um, we did a few stints up in far north Queensland and also over to Africa. Of course, going over to remote places is kind of cool. You get to hang out with a lot of people, do some alfresco dining, <laughs> go for long, leisurely strolls across the water, maybe a canoe ride through one of the most densely populated saltwater, freshwater crocodile areas on the planet. <laughs> in canoes that leaked and had to be pulled over to the bank and get repaired with mud. Our boys freaking us out on the <laughs> CP. But of course, our time with MAF is mostly to do with aeroplanes. And in many countries, and in Papua New Guinea um, in particular, but many, many countries, um, it's a country of six million people, 90%. So what's that? Five point something percent live Bush true. They live in a place where you either walk, you either canoe, or you get an aeroplane. So uh, one day's walking is roughly about a 10-minute aeroplane ride in, the, in a place like Papua New Guinea. I was there to work as an avionics engineer. Um, that's actually the school bus. So um, that's the, the math flight uh, taking the kids to school at uh, Ukurumpa. Sometimes our trips, everywhere we went, it was a, um, uh, pretty much by aeroplane. Aeroplanes dominated our uh, time up there in the work. So sometimes they were great family adventures. Sometimes they were a bit lonely. 
but always a blessing from God. So um, one thing about being a missionary is you've got to be flexible. You have plans, but um, you've got to be able to put your plans aside and be flexible. We had been working six months in Tanzania, six days a week, got a project. Do you want to just wind it back? Sorry, Ross. <laughs> We'd been um, working six months, six days a week, um, tr- getting a project finished. We were looking forward to finishing the project, which we did, and going on a holiday, just one week, to Zanzibar. It was awesome. And then at the last minute, MAF said, change of plans. Could you guys make sure that you jump on this plane and go with that plane? It was a bit disappointing, but you know what? God just blessed us amazingly. We actually, it was the best international flight ever. This was literally 50 metres from our front doorstep. This was the international airport. And uh, we threw our bags on and we flew low and slow from Tanzania over the Serengeti, over Lake Victoria, over a couple of cool craters and into um, Uganda and um, into a private airstrip into Uganda, as it turned out. And um, it's experiences like that that, well, not many people get to have. So this is us just after we came back. Um, I was actually going to show you a lot of more photos of my work, but as I'm going through the photos, you actually don't take a lot of photos of yourself at work, as it turns out. <laughs> there was thousands of photos of us having birthday parties and watching the kids play in the rain and the mud and having Christmas parties and, and the Hagen social ball party. We actually had a lot of parties. We had fun <laughs> nights. Um, we had chocolate nights and karaoke nights and <laughs> dance party nights and karaoke and dance party nights. And... We basically just lived our life up there and um, that's what God, I guess, called us to do is to, to make friends, to work and, um, and just live as best you can as a, as a Christian and witness and, and sharing God's love. So I don't have a lot of um, stuff about MAF from my photo collection. So I'll go to the fun facts. MAF, for those who want to know, is a um, technical mission, a Christian mission. Uh, every 10 minutes or so, a plane is flying, is taking off somewhere around the world, thousands of passengers being moved in really, really remote places. If you can get there by road, pretty much MAF's job there is done and it kind of moves. So it's, it's Mongolia, it's Sudan, it's um, places that we're not allowed to mention because it's a bit sensitive. There's South America, over the jungles, wherever. Um, we carry... Pretty much everything from pigs to building materials to teachers to evangelists to medical equipment to um, educational supplies, whatever needs to be carried in places where literally there's no other options. Anyway, I thought it might be easier if I show you a video. How cool is that, huh? It's a bit scary, though, when uh, you live over in those countries and your children can push out the aeroplane from the hangar that you're going to get into and fly over mountains. But we had an awesome time serving with MAF, and we were very, very blessed that we had 10 years and that we could take our four children, and then when Tlaith was born, our five children, onto the field with us. So tonight, um, I'm going to share, interesting, I've been preparing all week, um, the Lord laid something on my heart, and then about Friday, it just wasn't yelling, wasn't yelling, wasn't yelling. I'm going, Lord, what are you doing? So I took off and I went for a walk with the dog um, along Margate Waterfront, 
And then God just went bang. And then I went, no. And then he went bang. And I went, no. And then he went bang. And then I bawled. And that was it. And so um, I thought, really, really, you want me to share my testimony? Um, so I haven't done this in a long, long time has actually shared my testimony. But I said, Lord, I'm going to trust you, however you want that to go. Um, there's a story in that of what you have done in my life, from where I've been to where I've come to. And part of that has been our journey with MAF. So tonight, if you bear with me, I'm just going to share a wee bit of my testimony and some of the lessons that I have learned along the way. So I was raised in a Christian home. Um, I attended Sunday school and vacation Bible school for those who are old enough to remember VBS, a youth group, and I went to church every Sunday. I went to um, Bible study every Wednesday night, mainly just to hang out and have food and play darts and all that cool stuff you do with young people. And then at 16, um, we moved to Australia. My dad went to Bible college. And so again, I was raised and immersed in the Christian community at the Bible college down in Thornlands. And it was an awesome time. We had a Christian Bible college um, basketball team, and I just loved church. I loved being around Christian people. However, I didn't actually have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at that time. At 18, when we all left school and we all went our separate ways, I walked out of the church and I left the church and started hanging with my mates and stuff from school. At 19, I moved out of home and I moved in with my boyfriend. And a year later, I was pregnant with my first son, Jesse. This was, of course, a shock, um, big time, and I wasn't expecting that at all. However, my biggest um, reaction was, oh my gosh, what am I going to tell my parents? What are my parents going to say? Worse than that, though, what were the church people going to think of my parents? So I actually said to my parents, because um, you're at elders in the church, nobody needs to know. I can actually go back to New Zealand to the grandparents, and then nobody has to know about it. And they both just looked at me, and they go, are you kidding? Like, we will be there to support you, and the church will be there as well. That was huge for me, because they were the people that I thought would judge me, and would judge my parents, and even disown us. But they were awesome. The first person up to the hospital to visit Jesse when I had him was our pastor, who just happens to be Caitlin's father-in-law, and uh, four elders of the local church that our family were going to. A year later, I was pregnant, and I had my second son, Delane. And again, the first people up to the hospital to see me and to welcome um, Delane into the world was, once again, the same pastor and the four elders of this church. For me, that was huge because my thoughts of what I thought Christian people were like, that they would be judgmental and things like that. But you know what they did? They showed me the love of Christ. They were the hands and feet of Jesus. Four years later... Um, I had split with the boy's father, and I was now a single mum with two kids, but I was living with a new boyfriend. And I went to camp in New Zealand. There was a big um, young adults camp over there, and I just wanted to go and catch up with my friends. I wasn't a Christian, but I wanted to go and see all the kids that I grew up with in New Zealand. So I went across to this camp, and um, it was the last night, as always, at a youth camp, where um, there was a guy preaching, and he was talking about the burning bush. And he was saying, you know, some of you are waiting for this extravagant... Um, spectacular, you know, thing to happen where you're just going to go, oh, yeah, God's calling me, God's calling me, God's calling me. He says, you don't need to wait for that. He says, you know what? God loves you just the way you are, that he loves you so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for you. Well, that started. <laughs> those feelings started to come up inside, and I'm like, yeah, but he loves those ones, and he loves those ones, and he loves those nice ones. How could God 
loves someone like me. I was a single mother. I was living in sin with my boyfriend. And I thought, how could he? Like, the guilt and shame that I carried to be um, a mother out of woodlock. So anyway, I just sat there, had my head down, and God was staring up inside me. Then they started singing a good old hymn. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I love that song. It's just one of my favorite all-time songs. And so then I'm going, oh, oh, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? I went, no way, God. There is absolutely no way. I'm walking down the front to the altar with 200 young people watching me. Us um, Maori girls can be quite stubborn. Anyway, I sat there, sat there, had my head down, and I wasn't going anywhere. The pastor kept praying. He says, you know, I know there's people out there. You know, just come as you are. It's okay. Come as you are. He loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. Well, now I'm kind of getting a bit teary in those who know me. That really doesn't happen very often. So I went, okay, I'm almost out of here. It's the last night. I can get out of here. And the next minute, they started singing another chorus. And it was something beautiful, something good. All my confusions, he understood. All I have to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful out of my life. And that was it. I lost it. I was crying, had my hat over my head, head down, all that kind of stuff. But it was right then and there that I knew. I knew that even though I had two kids out of wedlock, even though I was living with my boyfriend, even though I thought that my life was unworthy, I knew that he loved me. And that night I gave my life to the Lord. Many of us grow up doubting the love of God because of the relationships we have with others because of the broken relationships we've had, sometimes because of the hurt that we've had with others, sometimes from our own bad choices, and sometimes because we think we're not good enough. Yet God loved us in spite of that. And if we read God's word, it is layered with scripture upon scripture of his love for us. 1 John 4, 7, 12, it says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who is love is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. So no matter how many mistakes we've made, no matter how unworthy we think that we are, he still loves us and he still wants us to come to him as we are. 1 John 3.1 says, How great is the Father's love for us that he lavishes on us and that we should be called children of God. It doesn't matter what you are, what you've done, where you've been. God loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you. We all know that verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And in Romans 5.8 where it says, God shows us his love. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in spite of what I thought of myself, the first lesson I learned about God is that I am enough because of God's unconditional love for me. So from the day that I got saved, I was on fire for God. 
I was going to church. I was going to every single Bible study group I could get into. I was driving an hour. I was going here. I even joined the senior women's Bible study group because I was so keen, (laughs) so hungry and thirsty to know more and more about Christ. So I grew in my faith and the knowledge and the understanding of who Jesus was and who he said that I was. And I was led to a place of total surrender. What that meant for me was that my life, my wants and my desires were no longer mine, but they were his. This was a huge shift in my thinking. Because that meant putting God first above everything. And at that time, I was living with a guy who I was about to marry six months later. And I had to give him up for God. So here I am again, a single mum of two awesome boys, on fire for God, serving in my local and district church, working part-time and living daily for him. I remember growing up and all I wanted to do was travel. I lived raised in New Zealand, little Maori girl in a little town called Wainuiomata, and all I wanted to do, this was my ultimate dream, people. You gotta remember, it was like 35 years ago. My ultimate dream back then was to go to Dreamworld. Dreamworld on the Gold Coast. So no one ever traveled in New Zealand. It was too expensive back then to fly across, but that was my ultimate dream was to come to Dreamworld. Anyway, I I did do that eventually when we moved here, but I never really got to travel that much. And then this time that I'd given my life to Lord everything, I also surrendered that passion and that desire to want to travel. And then I was called to Bible college. Now, I've been in ministry, I've been serving, and I'm like, really, Lord, Bible college? Like, what on earth would I go to Bible college for? Everybody else tried to tell me it was to be a pastor and this and that, and I'm like, well, don't you think the Lord's going to tell me? Like, if he wants me, he'll let me know. However, I did know I needed to go, and so I purely went out of obedience, nothing else other than obedience and to learn more about Christ. So it was when I was at Bible college that I actually heard about short-term missions. So this was a foreign concept to me. All I really knew about missionaries was that they got a heart for one particular country, and they served there forever and ever, I mean. That's kind of the concept I had in my head of missions. So now I hear about short-term missions, so I'm like, I'm signing up. First one, I'm signing up. You remember, I'm a single mother on a single mother's pension at Bible college and going, yeah, 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 I'm going to go to America. I'm going to go on these mission trips. And all because I knew who God was, and I made a deal with God, actually. I kind of said to him, I'll do it, but you've got to pay for it. That was my deal that I made with God. And so my first trip was to the USA for six weeks with Caitlin and another team. And we went around and we traveled and we went to a big Nazarene conference and we went to different churches. We went to Mexico. We were able to encourage and support some of the local churches over in America. The following year, still single with two kids at Bible college, I go to the Solomon Islands for three weeks to build a school. And the following year after that, I get to go to Greece and I mean, you know, when you want to do something, you go, God, come on, come on, I really want to do that. So I got the opportunity to go to Greece and do street evangelism with Campus Crusade and um, to do some of the mission camps that were there. This was actually another testing time in my walk with God because at that time there was a war going on in Kosovo and the American troops were there and they were all on the border. And I remember thinking, wow, we're going there, right there. There could be a chance that I may not come home. And so I had to wrestle with that reality. 
And I had to go, Lord, I know I said I'd go wherever you want me to go, but what about my two boys? Who's going to look after them? And he's like, trust me or not? Trust me or not? And so that took about three weeks of me just praying and seeking and really going, Lord, okay, okay, I'll do this. And then go, no, 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 I don't want to do this. And, and just that wrestle that I had within myself to the point where I came to, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you with my children. And I went and I came back, obviously. So <laughs> a year after that, um, I got to take a team and lead a team down to the Sydney Olympics, which was really cool. And, um, and that was a time of outreach where we got to share Christ's love with so many people from around the world. Within three years of laying down my all, being totally obedient to him, I had traveled more than I could have ever asked or imagined. However, in that time too, Matt happened during that time. And he and I were married, and we added two more kids to the Winnika Tomo clan. <laughs> in 2004, I returned to Greece for the Olympics. This was the last short-term mission trip that I had committed to as a single mother. So before Matt and I got married, I had already committed from the Sydney Olympics to go to the Greece Olympics. Well, now I've got four kids. And I'm like, oh, I really don't want to go. And JL and Jacob were around. They were so young. They must have been one or two, two and three or something like that. But I had made that commitment to God first. And I'd always said, God, my husband, my children, and then the church and ministry. And so I went, okay, I've got to do this. So I go off and I go to Greece. And it was an awesome time again of street evangelism and um, going to the islands. I got to go to the island of Patmos. So it was incredible. I had a wonderful time. But in that time, I was really missing Matt and the kids. So it was four weeks that I left them behind. And I remember chatting with God while I was there and saying, oh, I know, I said I'd go wherever you called me. Um, and I said, but next time, can I take my family with me? And so um, that was June 2004, I was in Greece. By October 2004, Matt was up in Mariba having his first interview with MAF. By December 2004, we had packed up our home and we'd moved up to far north Queensland. My plan was to be a single mum for the rest of my life, to serve my local church and to serve God however he deemed fit. His plan was so much more than that. I had to trust him that his plans were far better than mine could ever be. That even when I didn't want to let go of the boyfriend, I had to trust his plans. When I didn't know why I had to go to Bible college, I had to trust his plans. When I was fearful of leaving my boys behind, if anything happened to me, I had to trust his plans. Even when God brought good things into my life like Matt and a healthy relationship that would lead to a God-honoring marriage, I had to trust God and his plans. The more you spend time with him in prayer and the more you meditate on his word, the more you surrender your desires and your wants to him, the easier it is to trust and obey. There'll be seasons in your life where you'll be excited to follow his leading and other times when you won't. But this is when we stand on his promises. Matthew 6.33, it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You might start doubting and questioning, but remember the words of Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. The heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
Sometimes we can simply procrastinate and try and change God's mind and argue with him back and forth, back and forth. But if we truly trust him with our hearts, our souls, and our minds, we'll remember what the book of Jeremiah says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for you to prosper and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. When I didn't think that I could have much more to offer, he tells me, lesson number two, I am enough because God has a plan and a purpose for my life. We loved our lives on the field, like Ruth and Dallas, those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, they thought they were going to be in PNG forever. They did seven years of training to be up there for three years. Well, we were the same. We've been serving with Matt for 10 years. Two out of our five children were back in Australia while we were still up in PNG. And then Matt asked us to go over to um, Africa region. They wanted Matt to do some upgrades on those aeroplanes that you saw. So that would mean we would go to Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, Madagascar, and Mongolia. Of course, we were all excited. We wanted to go. We couldn't wait to go. So we arrived in Tanzania in January 2014. And three months later, Matt's dad was diagnosed with um, slow set of Alzheimer's. We started to pray, and we started to seek God's direction in what we were to do next. Within a month, all five of us, Matt and I and the three younger ones, we had all got confirmation that we needed to return back to Brisbane. That was a huge decision. That was another one of those wrestling and struggling with God. We loved Africa. We loved the people. We loved serving with MAF. But we knew that we needed to go home and be there for the family. Not only was it hard to leave Africa, it was actually also hard to leave because it meant leaving MAF. Because there are no airplanes in Brisbane where Matt could work and serve. And so we actually were leaving uh, the mission after 10 years, which we had not expected. So, of course, that was a struggle. We left Africa December 2014. After 10 years in third world countries, it was a bit of a culture shock coming back to Brisbane. I remember sitting in the doctor's surgery and um, here at North Lakes, actually, and people were complaining about how long it was taking to see the doctor. And I'm sitting there going, you have no idea. I flew on a math plane to 20 minutes to a remote village where women had walked four to five days with their children just to get them weighed, just to get them checked out, just that they would be healthy. And I'm sitting there going, oh, Lord, what am I doing here? Like, really, what am I doing here? Or even enrolling our three kids into Mueller College. For us, it was like, oh, that was easy. And then it brought me back to PNG, where a lot of our friends, they've got to choose which one of their four children are going to go to school because they can't afford education for their kids. I'm like, Lord, really? What are we doing back here? What are we doing? What am I going to do here in North Lakes? How am I going to serve you here in Brisbane? The needs in Brisbane are so much different to the needs in third world countries. They're so obvious in third world countries. It's not like anyone in Brisbane is going to go, uh, Joe, when did you get on that flight? You need to fly 15 minutes from Rome Village. You need to pick up a father and a daughter who've just been carried three days from another remote village because a tree had fallen on their house through the night and the mother got instantly killed. No one's going to say that to me in Brisbane. I'm like, Lord, why? Why did you bring us back? I was way, way more useful 
overseas and on the field. <laughs> so it wasn't easy. It took months to grieve the loss of serving with MAF and the adventurous lifestyle that I loved to live. Then he reminded me once again of my commitment of total surrender to him. I had to submit again. I had to take up the cross and live daily in his presence. So I said, okay, Lord, how am I going to do this? What do I need to do? So I got more intentional. I got into prayer times more. I got into scripture more. I went, all right, I need to get in, involved in things more. So I rock up here to Axis and I go to prayer meeting. The first group, Tuesday night prayer meeting, that was the first group of people I got connected into. Then I joined a growth group here at Axis and God just continued to comfort me because we were still mourning and feeling the loss of leaving the mission field. But at the same time, he was saying, I've got you. It's okay. I've got you. I got more intentional about serving, and I just joined whatever I could join. And the thing about Western culture, you've got to be so much more intentional to build relationships than you do on the field. When you're on the field, you're kind of a foreigner, and so all the expats hang together, and all the Christians hang together, and it's so easy to be a Christian on the field. But here in Western culture, very, very different. However, within seven months of living back in Brisbane, all of my children have moved home. We had been apart for seven years. Talitha lost her brothers when she was two because they went to boarding school and had never lived together. So for the first time in seven years, our boys came back to Brisbane and I had all of them living at home. And I gained a daughter-in-law at the same time who also was able to come and live with us. It was a time back in Brisbane where we strengthened our relationships with our family members who don't know Christ. We still have family members that don't know Christ that we're praying for, and that God's got a plan for them. We also get to take care of Matt's parents and be around our family and our parents as well. In that time also, I got to travel, not for missions, but I got to travel to Hawaii, got to travel to Vanuatu, got to travel to New Zealand, I got to travel to Hong Kong, I got to travel to England, all of this in the last four or five years that we've been back in Australia. I got to celebrate Delaine and Natalie's wedding. I'm going to get to celebrate Jesse and Kyla's wedding in October. And we get to welcome our first grandbaby in November. Our adventurous season on the field was finished, but our adventurous season in Brisbane was just beginning. And God has not finished with us yet. Church, we've got to trust God that he knows what he's doing. Sometimes we just need to be still. And we just got to let him teach us how to be content in the seasons that we're in. Sometimes it's in our everyday lives where we actually grow the most. It's when we're still that we hear him. We just need to rest in him and know that he's in control. Philippians 4, 8, 12 to 13, it's a great chapter that talks about being content. It talks about thinking right. It talks about thinking pure. It talks about thinking about the good things and rejoicing greatly in him. The secret of being content is to get our strength from the Lord. Contentment is found in Christ alone. So when I think, what now, Lord? What on earth am I going to do now that our season's finished, where we loved it, where we thrived, where we just wanted to be on the field? What do I do now, Lord? What can I possibly do? And he says, I am enough for you because I haven't finished with you yet. I'm going to ask the team to come up right now. They're going to sing a song that um, 
may be new to some of you, may not be. And while they sing this, I just want you guys to listen to the words. The words will be up on screen. But I really just want you guys to listen to the words and just to reflect on what they say. And just to ask God what he wants you to do in this season of your lives. Is it a season where you don't know that God loves you? Is it a season where he's asking you to do something or not do something and you don't want to be obedient? Is it a season where you're like, I want to be here, I want to be there, and I want to be doing this and that, yet he's saying, just be still and rest in me.